Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. What is love? Love is a feeling of attraction. A feeling of attraction that is created by some similarity that we see in another person. And that attraction demands further closeness. So basically, love means the desire for further closeness. If there's no closeness to begin with, then there'll be no love. Then there'll be no desire for closeness, because if you're strangers, you're strangers. Where there is some kind of closeness, that will trigger a desire for greater closeness. And that desire for more closeness, that's called love. The opposite, of course, would be hate. Hate means a desire for more distance. I want to get away. I want to get far away. That's fear and hate. Love is the desire to get closer, to have more closeness, greater closeness, quality. What is this initial closeness that makes love possible? It could be a value. Since you value kindness very deeply, when you spot kindness in another person, that's the closeness. You feel familiar. Oh, kindness, yeah, that's my thing. If kindness is not your thing, if humor is your thing, and you notice that somebody has a really good sense of humor, you feel immediately at home, familiar. Oh, you have a sense of humor? Yeah, that's me. That's my thing. So now we already have something in common that causes a closeness. That will trigger a desire for more closeness. Or it could be very physical. There's a certain look I admire very much. You have that look, I'm attracted. And that attraction causes a desire for more attraction. So how do two islands two ships in the night, make their first contact. At what point or in what way do I stop being just me and start having a connection with you? So it could be the value that we share, the sense of humor that we share, or a look, or a belief. Something in you feels familiar to me. And that's our first point of contact. You're Jewish? <laughs> me too. See? That's it. We, got, we have a point of contact. Of course, the more personal that point of contact is, the more it will demand further closeness. The fact that we're both human beings? All right. Yeah, that's something in common, but... It's not going to explode into a love affair just because we're both humans. It's too general. It's too generic. If it becomes a little more specific, a little closer to home, then that initial closeness could trigger the emotion of love that demands a lot of closeness. Now that we understand that love means a desire for closeness, we can understand how love can go bad, how love can be destructive. It's one thing to say, I love you, I want to spend my whole life with you, I want you to be part of every part of my life. But it can also become what the Mishnah describes as swallowing you up alive. Were it not for the fear of government, people would swallow each other up alive. What does that mean? If I want closeness, and I want it intensely, and I want complete closeness, it can become very 
controlling, stifling, suffocating. I don't let you be you anymore. I need you to be me. And love becomes destructive. How does it happen? Because we understand love means a desire or a need for closeness. When does this desire get satisfied? When are we close enough? There's no end. There's no end. No matter what closeness we have, it triggers a desire for more closeness. In fact, if the love is not being felt, like between a husband and wife, because they've gotten close, they are close, so they don't feel a need for further closeness, then what happens is subconsciously they create a, a distance. They get into a fight. They create an issue that separates them, and then the love comes alive and says, no, no, wait, 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 we need closeness. So they get into an argument just so that they can make up and have more closeness. Of course, that's not a good idea, and it's usually not necessary. You don't have to make up a fight. Just wait. <laughs> It'll come naturally. You don't have to invent. There will be enough crises, there will be enough issues that will awaken the love to want more closeness. So, knowing that love means a desire for closeness, then we know that we have to be careful. Because that desire can get out of hand. You don't want closeness, you want total control. That's taking love just a little too far. So if you say, you know, if you really loved your husband, you would give him a little more room. That doesn't make any sense. Love can't tolerate room. Because room means distance. The distance between husband and wife will always spark a need for love. And what is the distance? The fact that it's a man and a woman. See, God is very smart. <laughs> God said that a man should marry a woman. And at first, that doesn't make any sense. Because men are from Mars, you know. Women are from Venus. How, do they, how are they supposed to marry each other and get along? They're too far apart. And it will never change. It's not like as you get older, you're not so much a woman. You're still a woman. As you get older, you're not so much a man. You're still a man. In fact, you become more. So you will always be from Mars, and you will always be from Venus. How is this supposed to work? And of course, the answer is very simple. Love means a desire for closeness. The fact that you're man and woman, you will always need more closeness. Because male and female are opposites. So even without getting into a fight, it's just the fact that he's a man... Well, you've got to get closer because this distance. I mean, how far is Mars from Venus? They never come together. They're always far apart. So there is always a need for closeness. One of the problems in relationships today is that this book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, is a shock to the system because we've tried to convince ourselves that men and women are pretty much the same. For somebody to come along and say, the same? We're from different planets. Well, finally, somebody's telling the truth. But we've tried to convince ourselves that human beings are human beings. Male, female, what's the difference? All people are the same. I don't see you as a woman. I think of you as a person. Well, then we can't get married. Because then there's no distance for us to need closeness. Then it's like a brother and sister. They're close. They don't need closeness. It's not good when husband and wife feel like a brother and sister. So... 
Love means the desire to bridge the distance, to get closer in spite of or because of the distance. And that's why absence makes the heart grow fonder. Absence is a distance. You love each other more when you're far apart. Because when you're closer together, you don't feel the need to bridge the gap, to bridge the distance. Because the distance is not so threatening. When you get into an argument, you get into a fight, then you realize how much you love each other. Because that distance is threatening and the love kicks in and says, no, no, no. We need closeness. We can't have this separation. Okay, so human beings are capable of making connections with each other, which means I am not an island unto myself. I don't exist very well in isolation. I respond. I'm a social creature. I respond to other people if I find something in them that is familiar and similar. That's what we mean by attractive. Attractive means something in you is familiar to me, is comfortable to me. Again, whether it's the sense of humor or the look or the values or the beliefs, something makes me feel at home in your presence. That's a lot more significant than we both like tennis, or we both like a certain movie, or we both like uh, a certain drink, like pina colada or something. This capacity to connect with another person and want more and more connectedness, more and more closeness, this comes in a number of forms. It's not just one love. There are different kinds of love. Why are there different kinds of love? Because love means a bridge that brings us together. There are different bridges. There are different avenues through which a person reaches beyond himself to another person. So, for example, there is the love where we're talking now intense love, not frivolous, passing, temporary thing. There's a love that basically feels like this. I am me, and you are you. I have my life, and you have your life. But I have become so attached and so connected to you that your life has become my life. You have become my life. In other words, I love you the way I love life itself. Everybody loves life. Almost everybody. The love you have for your life can transfer to another person. And you can literally and honestly say, you are my whole life. What do you mean, do I love you? You are my life. I love you like life itself. Maybe that's what uh, Golda meant. Do I love you? You're my life. If that's not love, what is? Every person loves life. It's described in Torah as a love that wakes you up at night. What is a love that wakes you up at night? If a person feels like his health is failing, like you stop breathing for a moment, even if you're asleep, it will wake you up. What wakes you up at night? A threat to your life. There's a love that feels like waking me up at night. The thought of losing you is as frightening as losing life. So if I stopped breathing for a moment, it would frighten me terribly. Why? Because this could mean a loss of life. And I, I, I love life.
So anything that threatens my life threatens my love for life. And I can't allow it. So I'll get up in the middle of the night, which I hate to do. <laughs> but if my life depends on it, of course I'm going to get up. So what does this love mean and what does this love do? It means you have become, in my mind and heart, you have become synonymous with life itself. You are my life. That's what it feels like. What does it do? It makes me get up at night. It disturbs my sleep. It takes me out of my comfort zone. I will go out of my way for you, just as I would to save my own life. That's called, I love you like life itself. That's a certain kind of love. It has its own place in the heart, and it has its own place in the mind. The mind can relate to that. The mind can approve of that. Yes, you have become as important to me as life itself. Then there's another kind of love, which human beings are capable of. It's a completely different kind. It's not greater, stronger, lesser. It's a different ballgame. And that's called, I love you more than life. More than life. That's the love that children have for their parents. When children are willing to sacrifice everything for the parents. You might say that I love you like life itself is the love of parents to children. Because that's true. Your children are your whole life. The love of children to parents is not you are my life. It's not true. Children don't feel that way. And that's why, in many ways, the devotion of parents to children is much greater than the devotion of children to parents. Although you'd think it would be equal. You know, if I love you that much, I expect you to love me that much. But it doesn't work that way. The devotion of parents to children is of a different quality than the devotion of children to parents. Because to the parents, children are their whole life. It's not the case with children. On the contrary, in order for the children to have a life, they have to get away from the parents. And the parent can't say, where are you going? I'm your life. That's not true. I got to go find a life. I got to get a life. Torah actually says, therefore should a man leave his mother and father and get married. If you don't leave your mother and father your life doesn't go anywhere. On the other hand, when children are devoted to their parents, it's bigger than life. It's not you are my whole life. That's very rare. What children feel towards their parents is you are bigger than life. You're more than life. You are the source of life. And therefore, my life is meaningless in the presence of your life. So if we're in danger, who should be saved? You, because you're more important than my life. So it's interesting. You're not my life. That would feel very strange and, and wrong. You are more important than my life. That feels normal between children and parents from children to parents. That kind of love is a completely different emotion. How can you love something more than your own life? See, if you become my life, then I understand. I love life. You're my life? Okay, fine, then I love you. Oh, you're my life? Then I'll love you. It's my life. And the love for life is natural, and we're familiar with it, and it wakes us up at night. Sleep apnea. If you can't breathe for a moment, you wake up. 
So if I transfer that love to somebody else, I understand. I love life, and you are my life. So naturally, I love you. But what does it mean to love something more than life? Where does that love come from? So you're not transferring a given love, a known love, to somebody else. This is a whole different love. If you don't love your parents that way, you may never love anyone more than life. Because a love more than life, that's not natural. Loving life is natural. But to find a love that is greater than your love for life, that's rare. That's unusual. These kinds of loves are described in Torah only as an example, as a model for the kinds of love that we can have for God. There's a time when we love God because God is life. I mean, without God, there's no life. God is life. Losing touch with God means losing some touch with life. On the other hand, you're equating God with your life. There's much more to God than your life. There's much more to God than life itself. All humanity. So there's also a love that we have for God beyond life. Now, if you love someone because they are your life, it will wake you up at night. You can't afford to lose them because they are your life. But will you sacrifice your life for them? Not likely. The only reason you love them is because they are your life. Because you love your life and that extends to them. So extending to them doesn't mean that you're going to give up your life, which is why you love them in the first place. So, if you are my whole life, I'm not going to die for you. What's the point? I love you because you give me life. You're going to take my life away? <laughs> That's not part of the deal. So, the other love, the love like a parent, feels different. It's a different feeling. It's a love more than life. And what is its effect? won't just wake you up at night. You're willing to give up your life. Because compared to the source of life, compared to the source of your life, your life becomes insignificant. And so children are, on occasion, willing to sacrifice their life to save their parents. It doesn't have to mean literally dying. It means they'll sacrifice their career in order for the parents. They'll sacrifice their comfort. They'll sacrifice their house, their car. But they will sacrifice more readily than if I love you like my life. I don't sacrifice for my life. <laughs> I like living. I love living. I don't sacrifice to live. But if something is more important than life then sacrificing starts to make sense. If they need something and I need something, well, of course, they should have and I shouldn't. Because they are bigger than life and I'm only life. So that's called love like a parent. The love of a child to a parent. And what does that imply? The willingness to give everything up for them. There's a third kind of love. In relationship to God, when we say, love God, do you love God, you should love God with all your heart, with all your soul, how does a human being have the chutzpah to love God? Love means a certain closeness. You have a closeness with God? <laughs> We're saying you love somebody because you see a similarity. You have something similar? You have something in common with God? So what do you mean you love Him? 
You want more closeness. More closeness? <laughs> you don't have any closeness. You're infinitely separated, infinite distance. So what do you mean you love God? How could you love God? Now, if you're a holy person, if you're a tzaddik, if you're a saintly person, if you are, in fact, God-like, then you would love God. But an ordinary person? What are you doing loving God? Who do you think you are? In that relationship, we would have to have grades. The more holy, the more godly you are, the more capable you are of loving God. The less godly you are, you have no business loving him. And that's why it can be very discouraging to the average person. Do I love God? It's a painful subject. I'd rather not talk about it. People who claim to love God, you have to wonder, what do they mean by that? What do they mean they love God? Luckily, happily, there's a kind of love that people have that is called reflective, reciprocal love. It's not, I love you because I find something attractive in you. I love you because... I think you love me. And when I think you love me, there's an instinct or a reflex in the heart that causes me to love back. That's why it's called reflected or reciprocal. If, in fact, you love me, then I can't help loving you back. What's so fantastic about this is that there's no distinction between a tzaddik and the lowest of the low. If God loves you, then it doesn't matter whether you are godly, holy, or miserable. Because you're not initiating, you're responding. So if God loves you, there's a reflex that makes you love back. That's the one of the properties of love, is that it, it is responsive. In fact, this is such a strong reflex that even if you don't know that a somebody loves you, you find yourself loving them. As a reflex. It's not even conscious. You don't know that they love you, and yet you find yourself attracted. And the only thing attracting you is the fact that they love you. And somehow you're feeling that. So what's great about this is that you don't have to have any special virtues. You don't have to be wonderful to love God. Because if He loves you, you love Him back. Regardless of what your personal standard or your, your station in life happens to be. Actually, more than that. The more miserable you are, the lower you are, the more callous, the more undeserving of the love, the more you will love back. If God can love me, being miserable and lowly and, and unholy and undeserving, if he can love me in this condition, then you got to love him back. So when I think, wait a minute, what am I doing loving God? Where do I come off loving God? I'm not deserving, I'm not worthy, I'm not special, I'm not holy. The answer is, that's what makes me love him. If I am so lowly and he loves me, well, I got to love him back. So if two equals are responding to each other, I find out that somebody, a friend of mine, loves me. I can't help loving him back. Even though we're equals. There's nothing unusual about his loving me. But it gets even stronger if, if we're not equals. If he is the king of kings and I am the lowest of the low, 
and he loves me, then I will love him back even more than I love an equal. So this is called reflective love, reciprocal love. When you feel that you are undeserving of someone's love. When a husband feels, my wife is so much better than me. How did I end up with such a wife? She deserves much better. She could have had anybody. And she settled for me. I have not been so good to her. And she loves me. I can't help loving her back. And the more I recognize how undeserving I am, the more I love her. The more I realize how special she is, the more I have to love her for loving me. So, this is a third kind of love. It's a whole different feeling. It's not you are my life. It's not you're more than life. It's you're irresistible. How can I not love you back? And what effect does it have? It doesn't wake you up at night, although it might. And it doesn't make you sacrifice for her, although it might. It has its own special effect. And that is, the more you feel undeserving, the stronger the love will get. In the other two loves, it's not going to work that way. If you love someone like life itself, and then you feel that you don't deserve, it's going to destroy the love. It can become very depressing. You are my life, and I don't think I deserve you. That's a depressing thought. It's like I don't deserve life. Well, that puts a damper on the party. <laughs> I love you like life itself, but I don't think I deserve this, so... I'm stuck. I'm depressed. Terrible. If I love you more than life, but I don't think I deserve to have... Well, then that ruins it. In the third love, whether I deserve you or not, I'm going to love you anyway. Because I'm just responding. And if I really don't deserve you, I'll love you even more for loving me. I think that explains a little bit Yom Kippur. It's a strange thing, Yom Kippur. You come to God to admit that you are not deserving. And you spend a whole day bothering Him. All day. Forgive me, forgive me, pardon me, accept me. Tolerate me. Don't you realize you're a nudnik? <laughs> you don't deserve it. Go live your own life. Leave God alone. You ruined that relationship. Yet we keep coming back. Why? Because even if I don't deserve, and I have not acted all year as if God was my life, I was not acting that way. And I certainly wasn't acting as if God was bigger than life. So what chutzpah, what kind of courage does it take to come on Yom Kippur and say, come on, let's patch things up. Forgive me, I didn't mean it, I'm good, I'll be good. What a chutzpah that is, right? But God invented Yom Kippur. It's not that I want to patch things up, so I invent Yom Kippur, and I set aside a day in which I can bother him all day long and be a total nudnik. No. He invented Yom Kippur. He said, no matter what else you're doing on Yom Kippur, talk to me. I want to forgive you. And that's why we mention it in the prayers quite often. You set this day aside for forgiveness. It's not our invention. And that's what gives us the courage. You love me. Okay, so I'm trying to love you back not my idea. You started it. So no matter how bad we think we've been, we approach him because we're reflecting his love back. It has nothing to do with my being deserving.
There's one other kind of love. I mean, there are more, but let's talk about one more. This is called, I love you like a hidden treasure. What is the love for a hidden treasure? That's an interesting. I love you like gold. In Yiddish, parents would say to their children, you are my gold. That's the name gold that comes from. What does it mean, you're my gold? A person doesn't sit and wait for gold to show up. A person doesn't love gold when he finds it. The love of gold is not a love after the fact. When I have gold, I love it. No. The love for gold is unique. I don't have any. I've never seen any. I'm going to look. I'm going to dig. I'm going to cross oceans because I heard that there's some gold there. What connection do you have to gold? What have you got in common? Nothing. Do you have any gold? No. So where are you going? I'm going to look for gold. Why? Because I love gold. How did you get to love gold? You don't even have any. This is called the love of a treasure. You are my treasure. What does that mean? Even if I didn't have you, I'd come looking for you. It's a whole different kind of love. It's like that expression. If there's no law about this, then they should make one. There ought to be a law. If I didn't love you, if I didn't have you, I would go looking for you. That's related to this thing we call yearning. You yearn for something even if you've never had it. Like, for example, let's say uh, peace. We yearn for peace. There's never been any peace. We yearn for it. Not like homesickness. I used to have such a comfortable home, I want to go back. Peace we never had. And we want it. We yearn for it. So this kind of a love, the love of gold, or the love of a treasure, this can be called the yearning love. A love for someone, even though you've never seen them. That might be what marriage is really all about. You're looking for the person you're going to marry. What are you looking for? What does he look like? I don't know. Where does he live? I don't know. Then why are you looking for him? There's a feeling that we have that there's a piece of me that I don't yet have. And it is so essential to me, i got to go looking. In some way, that's more of a masculine trait, to go searching for gold, to go digging for treasures. And even in marriage, it's the more masculine side. The man pursues a wife. It's more of an aggressive thing. But we're capable of that kind of love. We're capable of the feeling or of the recognition that there's a part of me or there's something out there that is so important to me that even if I don't yet have it, i got to go search for it. I can't be content without it. So, we have five kinds of love. There's a love that makes us identify with a person like life itself. Your love for life gets focused or transferred to a person. The second kind of love, bigger than life, the love of parents. That means that some things are more important than your, than your very life and that you will sacrifice your life for that person. The third kind of love 
is a love that is independent of your virtues or of your similarities with the person you love. On the contrary, the dissimilarity makes you respond with love more than if you were similar. The fourth is the love of a hidden treasure. And that is, not only will it wake me up at night, not only will I put myself in danger looking for this treasure, as you see people go looking for treasure in the most dangerous places, and end up hurting themselves or losing their lives, not only will I wake up in the morning, at night, not only will I sacrifice for it, not only will I love it back if it loves me, I will love it even if I've never seen it, and I will go looking for it. All of these loves are the, the, the various strings that attach us to God. And because they are part of our relationship with God, that's why they are incorporated in human nature. Once they're included into human nature, now we can have those kinds of love for each other. In fact, we can even have all those loves inappropriately. We can abuse them. Because once you give a human being a toy, <laughs> who knows what he'll do with it. But why does it exist in the first place? Because those are the strings with which we are attached to God. And you'll see this reflected in the different prayers as you read the, uh, the text on Yom Tif or on Shabbos or during the week. You'll see these ideas reflected in the, uh, in the text. There are times when we refer to God as life itself. There are times when we refer to God as more than life. Then there are times when we refer to God as you chose us. Why do I love you? You chose us. I'm just returning the compliment. It's just a reflective love. I'm reciprocating. And that's a theme in the prayers. And then there is the, the seeking love, the yearning love. I have never loved God. I want to. Well, if you've never had it, why do you... I yearn for it. If we apply all this to marriage, we have some pretty intense relationships. If we don't apply it to marriage, what are you saving it for? Who are you saving it for? To not use a gift you have, not nice. It'll go to waste, not nice. If you have a gift, you got to use it. So, if you don't use it in marriage, where are you going to use it? If you don't use it in relationship to your own parents, to your own children, where are you going to use it? So what is being a mensch to sum up the three, the three concepts that we've talked about? Being a mensch means taking mindful responsibility for your emotions. That's called being a mensch. Mindful responsibility for emotions would mean something like this. You have strong feelings, which is as it should be. Feelings are supposed to be strong, not bland. A bland feeling is no feeling at all. Feelings, by their very nature, are fiery, intense. When you have really strong emotions, like, God forbid, grief, or very positive emotions, intense love, intense pleasure. Being mindful, being a mensch, means that even in the moment of intense emotion, you are directed, you're guided, like smart bombs. <laughs> they're bombs, but they're smart. They explode, but they know where. They know when. Smart bombs. 
Smart emotions doesn't mean intellectualized feelings. Those are no feelings at all. Smart feelings mean they are feelings. They are intense, fiery, spontaneous, overwhelming emotions. But you never lose sight of where you're going. That's called a mensch. Somebody pointed out there were times when the Rebbe would be speaking about some issue and he would get very intense, upset, angry, disturbed. And you could see he is carried away. And yet, through all of those talks that lasted an hour at a time, if you go back and look at that and listen to the the Rebbe never misspeaks. In the heat of passion, he never said a word that he had to take back or regret. Inappropriate exaggeration, never. Even in the heat of the moment, the direction and the purpose was not lost. That's called a mensch. Have the right emotions and let them be emotions. Let them be strong. Let them be intense. And don't lose your purpose. Don't lose your direction. Some people are afraid of emotions because they feel that once they start, they'll never be able to stop. They'll get so carried away. There are people who are afraid to cry because they have so much pain that if they let themselves start crying, it'll be unending. It's not true, of course. You only have so many tears. But even if you could cry endlessly, being a mensch means, even if I let all my emotions go, I will not lose my purpose or my direction. You know what they say about hypnosis? People are afraid of hypnosis because who knows what the hypnotist can make you do or say while you're hypnotized. And they insist that that's not even possible. Being hypnotized does not mean that you can be manipulated. You can't. No one can make you do something you don't want to do. I don't know for sure. I'm only saying what, uh, what they say. Which means, by the way, even when you surrender completely to the hypnosis, you don't lose your purpose or your direction. You will not do something you don't think is right. But you're hypnotized. You've completely surrendered. Your eyes grew tired. <laughs> and they started to close. And you are now suggestible. And the hypnotist can tell you to float in the air, and you will. And yet you haven't lost your direction. If it's wrong, you will refuse. That's pretty impressive. Being a mensch means no matter how emotional you get, your mind doesn't forget. So you can afford to let yourself feel spontaneously, unconditionally, and not be afraid that you're going to end up doing something bad. So when a person says, don't get me angry, because, you know, when I get angry, I can't be responsible for what's going to happen. Oh, yes, you can. You're a human being. No, 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 when I get angry, I get very angry. Okay. And when you're very angry, then you're not a human being? So that argument, I cannot be responsible for what I do when I'm angry, that's not acceptable. A mensch is responsible, even in the heat of the moment. Of course, we understand when a human being fails. Crime of passion, we understand. What we understand is, not every mensch is a mensch. 
So if in the heat of passion you commit a crime of passion, we'll take that into account. But you ain't no mensch. <laughs> You're certainly not a mensch. Because a mensch means even in the strongest emotions, you never lose your purpose or your direction. And that's why we are permitted to feel emotions as deeply and as strongly as you can. There is no restriction. How happy should you be on Simchas Torah? Shouldn't you like keep a lid on it? No. You don't put a lid on an emotion. That's stifling. It's unnatural. If you're rejoicing, there is no limit. Rejoice away. But having unlimited rejoicing doesn't mean that you forget who you are, what you are, and what your purpose is. So all of that rejoicing is focused. It doesn't get distracted. It doesn't turn into something else. You know, like some people celebrate New Year's. Well, actually, it started off as celebrating New Year's, but that was quickly forgotten and it became into an ugly brawl about something completely unrelated to New Year's. Once you get started, once you get emotional, you lose track of what you were excited about and it becomes something else. That's called not a mensch. When you're a mensch, the excitement is focused. I'm excited about getting married. So I will sing and dance my heart out at the wedding. But I will never forget that it's a wedding and that that's what I'm celebrating. And of course, the same is true with love. Love can get so fablungent. Once you're in love, who knows what's going to happen? In fact, if you love somebody very strongly, you are very likely to start loving somebody else very strongly. Because love is uh, an emotion. You never know where it's going to go. Start off loving one person, you end up loving somebody else. You don't even know how it happened. That's because there's no mind that is influencing these emotions. In a mindful emotion, the emotion can be just as strong. It just doesn't get fablungent. It doesn't go off on tangents. It stays focused. Even if you get to the kind of love, the fifth love, which is kind of rare, and that is called the love that is like pleasure. Love like pleasure works like this. The nature of pleasure is that being the highest of all impulses, it influences all other impulses. When a person is experiencing intense pleasure, every other emotion, every other sensation Every other impulse gets drawn into that pleasure and he is so completely focused that his entire being becomes exclusively pleasure. When all the functions of the system are silenced by this intense pleasure, it feels like you're dying. <laughs> Or as some people say, it feels like you died and went to heaven. Because you're not experiencing any of your normal feelings or emotions or sensations or impulses. It feels like you died. Except that you are so alive in the pleasure. That's called ecstasy. When you're having a pleasure that creates ecstasy, ecstasy literally means the feeling that you're expiring. In fact, when that experience is really intense, there is the danger that 
you will literally expire. And you need to do something to keep you connected. Pleasure is the experience or the sensation of rising. You lose your gravity. There is nothing left to pull you back down. So you can literally expire. The soul will leave the body. There's a mystical concept. When the mystics were going to go into their mystical experience, they drew a circle in the sand and sat in or stood in the circle. And one of the reasons for that is to give them some focus so that they don't completely dissolve into the pleasure and literally die. A person who can be mindful even in that experience, that is a real mensch. That is a real mensch. Which explains the story of Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues. There were four of them, and they went into the secret gardens of Torah. Three of them didn't make it. Rabbi Akiva made it because he went in healthy and he came out healthy. And of course the question is, didn't they all go in healthy? They just didn't all come out healthy. But they all went in healthy. They were all scholars. They were all saints. They were all his colleagues. So what made him so different? They went into the secret gardens of Torah to find that ecstatic love. Three of them forgot to focus. What is the point of experiencing that love? What is the goal? What's the objective? And because they lost their focus, they literally lost everything. One died from ecstasy, the other one went insane, could not come back to normal life, and the third one just stopped believing in anything. All his fuses were blown. Rabbi Akiva went in healthy and he came out healthy, which means he went in with a purpose. There was a purpose to the experience. It wasn't an end in itself. And that's why he had the experience and he came out healthy. In simple terms, that means a person should be thoughtful and mindful about everything including wild emotions. You're going to have a wild, intense emotion? Go for it. Gesundheit. hate. But don't become brainless. Have a purpose. Have a guide to that emotion and come out better off than before. That's called a mensch. If you're guided, then your emotions won't destroy you. They will only enhance your life. When they're not guided, emotions are very dangerous. Having a new year gives us an opportunity to refocus. What does it mean to make New Year's resolutions? What is that foolishness? We all know we don't keep them. Making New Year's resolutions simply means take a look. Look at your past year and look at the coming year. Take a look. Give it a thought. That's good. Even if you can't keep your resolutions, you can't be as good as you wish you were. But you looked. You're not mindless. A year went by. Doesn't it deserve a look? Doesn't it deserve an opinion? Take a look. You like what you see? You approve? Don't approve? Okay, now take a look at the coming year. What do you foresee? Nothing? That's not a mensch. You start a year, you got to have a picture. Your mind is supposed to be the guide, 
the director has got to take a look. Maybe that's why it's called Rosh Hashanah. Not the new year. The head of the year. Start the year with a head. Not with an emotion. Then, a couple of days later, you can cry your heart out on Yom Kippur, and then you can dance your heart out on Simchas Torah. And fear not, because your mind is on top of things. You won't cry forever. You won't get so drunk and carried away that you're going to lose your mind. It'll be fine. Go ahead, rejoice. You're safe now. You've looked. You've thought. You have a head to this year. Now the year can be spontaneous, exciting, dramatic, intense, whatever you want. You won't get lost because you started off with the head. Make sense?